Oh boy, I praise God for Melissa O'Dell. That is much harder to do than a sermon, and I'm super, super thankful she's willing to give you all those updates. And the reason is, is we're not just trying to sell you things or say, hey, be part of our club, but we want to be intentional about providing opportunities for your spiritual growth and for ways to you, so you can reach out to others and be a part of the body of Christ. And if and if we can do that in any way, we certainly want to facilitate that. And those are there for you to take advantage of. Let's go ahead and pray as we continue to worship God this morning. Father, we praise you and thank you. Oh, you're so good. And we can't do anything without you. And we need you. And we fail you. And we ask that you would forgive us. Uh, we know that you will never fail us. And that's our hope, Lord. Not that we will never fail you, but that you will never fail us. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we look out our windows, and probably if you're like me, watch the Weather Channel and hear all the crazy reports of stuff that's going on. You see things like pileups on the highway and um, airports that are congested and flights that are all canceled. And it got me thinking about traveling a little bit, preferably to anywhere warm. Um, But what I thought of was particularly my experience when I get on an airplane. And on airplanes, the the way it's been for me is this. I don't know if perhaps you have your own private jet or something like that, but it doesn't usually work that way for me. So airline travel isn't necessarily a treat. Instead, it's head to the back of the bus and hope you're not right by the bathroom and jam your stuff overhead and take your, you know, pre-flight anti-nausea pills and hope that you make it through the day. Um, I'm not particularly scared of flying. I just don't really enjoy flying. One person told me uh, earlier this week, he said, oh, I love to fly. I said, really? Why is that? He said, well, I could do my three favorite things. I get to sleep, eat, and watch TV. I'm like, okay, there you go. But for me, it's not my favorite. I'm, I'm enduring it because I believe that where I'm headed is better, that the destination whether it's Florida, Arizona, anywhere south of here right now, is warm and nice and a great place that I want to be. So I'm going to endure the flight. And what that essentially says to me is, look, this is the way we human beings work. We will endure. We will push through. We will, we will continue to travel on as pilgrims and exiles, taking the next step if we know that it's worth it. And that's what the book of First Peter is essentially telling us not just to our travel in our daily lives, but instead to our journey of life in general. Here's a slide that shows you what that looks like. The theme of the book of First Peter for us is joy ahead, that there's something to look forward to. Yeah, there's twists and turns, there's ups and downs, there's definitely tr- trouble and tragedy along the way, no doubt. No one in your right mind would tell you that life is rosy and smooth the whole time. There's going to be trouble. But along the way, remembering that there's joy ahead, it gives us hope for the future, and as a result, strength for today. That's the book of 1 Peter in a nutshell. So what I'm hoping to do is help you set your sights or set your hope or set your heart on things to come. Now, I tried to think of another graphic for that this week, and it was really hard because I can't exactly do it with my hand or with a graphic what I do with my hands. Here's what I mean. If you're looking at this stuff right here, 
Okay, so this is the stuff in front of you. This is the stuff in your life. It's a lot. And indeed, there's sometimes where we can't see anything else because the tragedy is so big, there's no other way to make it through. We have to focus on the immediate emergency. True. But if at all possible, whenever possible, by all means, do your best to go beyond this and see this. If you can get here, then what happens is this doesn't seem so big. If all you see is this, you're totally blinded, you're weighted down, you're discouraged, you're stuck. But if, if you can step back and look over the horizon to see what's coming, then you have strength. It's like walking down a really dark tunnel. If, if you're walking down that tunnel and you're carrying a heavy load and all you're doing is staring at your feet, it feels heavy and you're about to drop and hit your knees. But... If you can look up ahead and you see there's light at the end of the tunnel, it doesn't decrease the weight on your back, but it does give you hope to keep going and take one more step. And that's what First Peter's asking you to do. Look, there's suffering, there's trials, there's hardship, there's tribulation, there's tests, but there's wonderful joy ahead. So that's the theme of First Peter. We're in the third sermon today. So we did verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 through 12. And now we move on to verses 13 through 21. And what happens with all good authors is they build their story or build their case on the previous section. So this section is building on what came before it, and it's going to give us three commands. Based on what you just learned, do these three things. These are the three things you implement in your lives now. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. It says this, Therefore, based on what came before it, therefore, based on that salvation, that inheritance, that living hope, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded by setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. When? When do I get my inheritance? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, sons and daughters of God, do not be conformed, that's a second command, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, just like God is, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, based on his character, you shall be holy, for God is holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then remember, conduct yourselves. Here's the third command. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable stuff like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You, who through him, through Christ, are believers in God, who God the Father raised God the Son from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Boy, I'm glad we have that, aren't you? This is what gets us through, and this is what communicates God's truth. And in this section, 
What he's doing now is he's done the teaching portions, a lot of it, in verses 1 through 12. Now he's going to begin to build the application. Good application always begins with teaching. It's the foundation. The truth is the foundation for the application. So here goes Peter, and he starts out and he says, Therefore, based on what you just heard, set your hope fully, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Now that grace is like the coming grace, the future grace, your inheritance, your salvation, this thing that you get, the absolute perfection, the desire of our souls, everything we have longed for and wanted, that which we receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I know we're in mixed company, so let me say this as gently and carefully as I can, but the Greek word for this is... The Greek word for this is gird up your loins. It says set your, set your hope. The Greek word is gird up your loins. It's like back in the day when they weren't wearing pants or shorts or jeans or whatever. They had these robes. And so if you were going to move somewhere quickly, you had to tie things down. You had to strap up your garments. You had to hold on to your shorts if you were going to be able to move fast. And so a lot of times biblical authors, when they're saying get ready to go, they're like gird up your loins. They're not trying to be crude or anything like that. They're just saying, hold, hold it together. It's time to move fast. If you're uh, of the female persuasion, it's like if you're a bride at your wedding day and you got these bridesmaids coming along and they're holding up this long train of your dress so you don't trip over yourself when you're moving down the aisle. That's the idea. Strap it in. Bring it together. Hold it tight. It's like, for example, if you're headed up to, I don't know, Mackinac Island and you got your bikes on the back of your vehicle. And all of a sudden, you've got them strapped to the back of your vehicle, and they fall off, and they end up in a ditch. And you're like, oh, man, what just happened there? Either they weren't strapped on just right, or the strap broke, one or the other. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt, Mike. (laughs) And your bikes are in the side of the ditch. You've got to strap them on. You've got to hold them there. If, for example, I've not only heard about bikes, I've also heard about bunk beds. I think he was in the first service. I even heard about someone who moved a swing set for one person, and they did it right. The way they did it is they had a wood trailer, and they fastened like two-by-fours onto this wood swing set, and then they drilled those two-by-fours down into their trailer. So if this went over, like the whole trailer is going over. It's not flying off the back. The idea is here, when it says, prepare your mind, set your hope, the idea is you strap it down, you tie it in. Kiddos, it's like if you go outside and you just got a balloon and you're really excited about that balloon, but that balloon is not tied to your wrist, it's gone, right? And then everybody's, it's a bad day because the balloon just blew away. In order for this to work, in order for you to set your hope, I know when I say set your hope, you're probably like, okay, what do I do? Set my hope? Where's the hope button? Right here, right? Like, I push this button and my hope is set? No, I can't flip a switch, so what do I do? The Bible tells us in two different ways. It says prepare your minds or be sober-minded or strap it down. The way you're going to impact your emotions is by directing your mind. If your mind runs out of control, if it is loose, then something's going to fall off and you're going to crash. 
Your thoughts, if you don't control them, they will control you. They will run. They will spiral. They will snowball. They'll be like a train that's out of control. You have to bring that thing back in and say, no, this is where you're going to go. It's like a ski track in the snow. Some psychologists and neurologists have said, your neural pathways work this way such that if you establish repetitive thought patterns, those connections get become more frequent and they're more easy and more fast. So if you think, for example, oh, I'm no good, I'm not good enough, and then you think that three or four times a day, before long you're really believing that, and then after a while you're really feeling that, and then you're really living that, and it just goes down, 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 down. And that's why... Um, behavioral psychologists will try to help you think positive because they're saying, okay, you need to think good thoughts. Like, okay, I'm good enough, and therefore and you feel better. And, and it does work that way. But what they don't realize is what the Bible tells us is none of us are good enough. And we can't put our faith and our hope in ourselves. Instead, we have to put it in a higher power in Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection provides forgiveness for everything we've ever done. We put it there, it never changes, and we keep beating down that track in our mind saying, Jesus is good enough, Jesus is good enough, Jesus wins, Jesus wins. Then we begin to control our minds and direct them down the path that they should go, and we feel better, we feel different. Our lives change. That's the way we work as human beings. You have to control your thoughts. You have to gird them. You have to strap them. You have to tie them up. You have to tie them down. You have to set your destination. This is where we're going to go. Speaking of setting our destinations, it's one thing for me to tell you about flying because I'm an amateur you know, guy who sits in the back of the plane, but I thought, you know what? I know somebody who happens to fly a whole lot more than I do. Here's a picture of her. See if you recognize her. Her name is Cassie Miller. Cassie was actually flying before she was driving. She comes from a long line of pilots who have all kinds of great piloting experience. And I thought, you know what, it might be interesting you know, because I'm getting on the plane, and this is how I'm trying to think about getting through my flight. But I wonder what a pilot thinks about to help her get through her flight. So, Cassie, would you come up and help us understand that a little bit more? All right, this is Cassie, everybody. Give her a round of applause. So as you're coming up, you can be thinking about, this is my question. I'm, I'm getting on the plane. I'm stuffing my head, you know, or my head. My, yeah, I'm stuffing my head. I'm also stuffing my stuff overhead, my stuff in the cabin compartment. And I'm thinking, all right, breathe deep. It's going to be okay. You'll make it. Where you're going is better. That's how I'm preparing myself for the flight. And that's what I'm doing way back in the back of the bus. What are you doing up front in the cockpit? Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. <laughs> First of all, I'm jamming my bags into the crew closet, so I'm still having the same struggles. But um, anyway, while passengers are boarding, and even before the boarding process, but while passengers are boarding, the pilots are busy up front. Um, we're doing a lot of stuff related to getting the airplane ready to go. One of the things that I have to do as a first officer is I have to walk around the outside of the airplane and make sure that there's no damage, make sure everything's ready to go, and then up front, again, once I'm back in the cockpit, both the captain and I are 
working hard at making sure that our flight plan is ready to go and that the instruments are all set up correctly. We're setting our altitudes, our headings, whatever's needed for that flight. And um, we're reviewing the flight plan that we get from our dispatchers. We have dispatchers that are, are trained people. They're trained for how to plan a flight. And they send the flight plan that they've created for us to us, and we review it and make sure that there isn't anything that needs to be changed. And um, yeah, we have to load that up into our basically our flight computer, which is essentially our GPS. We have to make sure that that's loaded up properly. We have to make sure that our departure and our destination are loaded up into that flight computer and make sure that all the waypoints in between are loaded up properly. And um, that's just scratching the surface, but that's, that's a lot of what we have to do. All right, so now five or ten minutes where you're pushing buttons on those funny-looking machines, that what you're, that's what you're doing. I heard you say you get a flight plan, and that comes from somewhere else, yes. somebody else. So you're not setting, uh, you're not necessarily saying these are our coordinates, but you're putting the coordinates into the, yeah, the flight, what, MS? The flight <laughs> FMS, the flight management system, um, which is the flight computer. It's like a little computer. That we actually have two of them in our airplanes, um, one for the captain, one for the first officer. And, um, yes, we have to load up the flight plan that we didn't create. We got that from our dispatchers. And um, the dispatchers, as well as air traffic control, I should bring them in as well. Air traffic controllers are not the same as dispatchers. They have different jobs, but they still work in harmony with the dispatchers. And between what the dispatchers have sent us flight plan-wise and whatever clearance we get from air traffic control, whatever other modifications they have to tell us with our flight plan, we have to take all that into account and load that up into our flight computer and make sure that it's all properly loaded. And you're right, we don't do that. We don't, we don't create the flight plan, but we have to put it in. So it's like a Trinitarian thing is what I'm hearing, is it right? There's like sure, a we'll go with that. dispatcher, a pilot, air traffic control, but it's all sort of pre-planned from yes. the foundations of the flight plan before Definitely. the earth. And, Definitely. and it's moving forward. We're predestined for our destination. All right. No. Good. I like that. So... Um, what happens, like my brother's in air traffic control, and uh, he, he describes it sometimes like, hey, like today, could be like flying inside of a ping pong uh, ball. You talked a little bit about faith and the connections there. Uh, how does that work as a pilot and as a Christian as you're seeing these two things, destination, being focused on a destination, but uh, I can't see further in the f- foot in front of me. How's that work? Yeah, it's an excellent thing to bring up. Um, I guess there is quite an analogy between what we're doing with flying our flight plan as well as the Christian walk. We have to trust that, obviously, the flight plan was done right. We check it, but we know that we have this destination to get to, and the focus of the whole flight is getting there. Obviously, sometimes we have to change if there's a thunderstorm that pops up or other weather that moves in or some other problem that we have to work around. Um, We might change what our original flight plan was. We might have to go off on a different heading and come back onto our flight plan. Um, sometimes we have to deviate off of what we originally expected by quite a bit just to, usually is to get around weather, but there are other reasons too. Um, and like you mentioned, sometimes we can't even see a foot in front of us because we're in the clouds. We can see the flight plan on our little computer, or on, our, on our instruments, but we can't see outside and we just have to trust that the flight plan is correct and that also um, we keep focusing on the destination and getting ready for it, making sure that we keep preparing for the destination even if we are having to deviate around storms or whatever. All right. So I'm hearing a lot of analogies in there. Are you hearing that? I think I got some sermon material. Thank you very much, Cassie. I appreciate it. 
She sent me an email which goes even further, and it is neat because there can be, you know, turbulence, right? There's turbulence in life. You run into a few bumps, but you can't panic and slam on the brakes. You just keep going and stay focused and trust that the flight plan is correct, and there's all these forces at work that are getting you from point A to point B. And a lot of it, she told me as a pilot, is really focusing on that destination and not deviating from the plan because you know with geometry or vectors or whatever if you deviate just a little bit off course over a long period of time man that's a big difference you may think it's a little misstep right now and we're going to try it and whatever but boom you keep repeating that pattern and all of a sudden you're going way 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 down the wrong track so listen up kids this is important why you make good decisions now and Adults, why you're intentional as well is because these things, these little things over a long period of time make a big difference. There's a big difference between being on a flight or being on a kite. I know you can't be on a kite, but maybe a hot air balloon. This is Midland, right? You're getting one where you intentionally direct things the way you want to go. And you're on the other, you're just being blown to and fro wherever the wind takes you. And the Bible says, don't be tossed and turned by every wind of doctrine. But instead, set your mind, set the course, chart it out. Be intentional, be disciplined, strap it down, program it in. Use whatever analogy you want to use to say the more scripture you get in you, the more you focus on that end goal, the better off you're going to be. Listen, there's some people out there who will say this. If you said it, I forgive you. <laughs> but it's, it's okay, you'll get over it and we'll fix it. Here it is. Some people say, some people will say things like, you know what, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's exactly false. That's completely opposite of what reality is. Hebrews 11 tells us the exact difference. It says, in fact, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. What happens is this. In Hebrews chapter 11, it gives examples like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. It says, through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, Obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. How? By focusing on the future. It says, for these people made it clear that they are seeking their homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They are thinking about the future. That's how we become earthly good now is by thinking or focusing on ultimately our destination. If the pilots aren't doing that, they're on the wrong path. If we're not doing that, we're on the wrong path. The people who have done the most for God are focused on the future. So you want to be like a flight, not a kite. Point number two. Number one is set your minds. Point number two, and I'll fly through these next. I'll fly through these next two. Whoa. Here's, let me show you a slide of that real quick, Martin, if you don't mind. Here's the slides so you'll, slides um, of our course, um, set your hearts by. Number one is setting your minds. We just said that. So you set your minds, you set your course. But number two is you deny your passions, okay? So you don't want every wind of doctrine to come and blow you wherever it goes. You don't want every desire that you have inside of you to control you. Instead, you want to control your mind. You want to control your thoughts, and you want to direct them where they want to go. I believe it's in verse 14. Yes, verse 14. 
which says this. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed. That's the second command. So the first one is lock it in, set the course. The second one's the opposite of that. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So in one sense, you set the course. You say, this is what I'm going to do. And then the other sense, you also set the course by drawing the boundary and saying, this is not what I'm not going to do. So when those desires come in, those foods that never satisfy, those temptations that never add up, those things that really don't matter near as much as we think they do, you push those aside, you cut them out and say, no, I am living for another purpose. Number one, set your minds. Number two, deny your passions. And number three, live in reverent fear. Living in reverent fear. I want to stop at this one for just a minute because I know that in our culture, fear is um, a real issue. I mean, there's anxiety, uh, there's depression, there's mental illness, and it seems like that stuff is all on the rise. And I don't want to belittle any of those or um, give you a pat answer for a real issue, but what I do want to say is this, is I think because of that, we have lost in every way a sense of what the Bible means when it says reverent fear. And what I mean by that is this. When we talk about fear, we think about our worst nightmares coming true. When we think about fear, we think about our child's abduction. We think about abuse. We think about paralysis and crippling diseases. We think about natural disasters, job loss. We think about relational implosions Losing a loved one, terrorism, torture, divorce, and the like. And that's where our minds go when we hear the word fear. And so in that sense, fear is a bad thing because those are all things that are driven by a broken world. But when the Bible says to fear God, it's not talking about worry about this almighty despot who doesn't care about us. It's saying actually it's a positive thing that's closer to respect. But even then, when I say respect, I know we don't, we don't know what we're talking about. Because when I say respect, I think a lot of us think of athletes or gangbangers or whoever thumping their chest. That's right. You know, like, respect, right? Respect. Give me some respect. You like, you take respect. And that's not it either. That's not the respect that the Bible's talking about. What it's saying is this. Here's an example. Uh, when I was in my first ministry uh, 20-some years ago, we were in this podunk church out in the middle of nowhere. And oftentimes what happens then is there will be these little tiny funerals and little tiny post office stops out in the rural whatevers. And they need a pastor to do a funeral and they don't have anyone. So they call the closest church. Funeral director contacts you and says, hey, are you available? Yes or no, let's go. And one of those happened to be... Um, uh, a very small service for an Air Force member. And what was interesting about it is this. I'm way out in the boondocks, but near Kansas City, there's Whiteman Air Force Base, which is the home uh, to the United States, one of the strategic air commands, which has the B-2 bombers, the big, 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 big ones. And they will actually, in order to do the military honors, even if it's just some, you know, private, super low totem pole dude, send out the whole crew in a bus all the way from Whiteman to do uh, a proper burial. And so we knew that this group would be out there, myself and the funeral director, and we're traveling out there in the hearse, 
And I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go because the reality is there's only going to be two or three people at this service and it's rainy, it's dark, it's yucky. And these people are driving three, four hours to get out and do a three-minute bugle, bugle call and go home. It's going to be small. Well, sure enough, I get out there and it's doing, the weather's doing its thing. But lo and behold, those military people are standing right there at attention we pull up in the hearse as soon as my foot hits the ground. Whop! I mean, right to the end. I'm like, whoa, what is this? And I went over and talked to the officers in charge, and we discussed the plans and stuff like that and where things were going to go for the service. And he said, would you like this and that and this and that? And I'm like, yeah, and I'll probably do the uh, presentation of the flag at the end. And he's like, boom. Yes, sir. I said, wow. Look at that. Kids, did you see that? (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) That is what I call respect. And that is just something you don't see in today's world. I mean, I still remember that now. Long, I mean, I would get shivers going down my spine thinking about it. This is for real. Now, I was not that guy's commanding officer. Obviously, he has a CO back at the base and whatever else. That CO was not there at the time, Right? And yet he knew that there was some power greater than him that sat above him so that regardless of what he was doing, wherever he was at, he was going to do his best job from the top of the church president all the way down to the lowest private. It didn't matter because he had respect. That's what we're talking about when it says conduct your lives with fear and respect. You need to understand, even when you're in a totally unseen place, even when it seems like it doesn't matter, that there is a higher power watching over you to whom you will give an account. This is my definition then of fear that is positive, fear that is proper, fear that is right. I just made this up. You won't find it in a dictionary, but I think this is how it goes. A positive fear is this. If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. A positive fear is the sobering reality The sobering reality of accountability to a significantly higher power. The sobering reality of accountability to a significantly higher power. Yes, in Christ we are forgiven. Yes, we will never be condemned. Yes, we have the blessed sacrifice of Jesus our Lord. But the reality is we make decisions each and every day. And for every decision, there is a cost. And we have to weigh those costs and count them in our minds and decide, will this please God? How will I use my time? How will I spend my money? Where will I seek joy? Where is my hope? Where is my satisfaction? What am I looking forward to? How will this please God? Because He is there whether we realize it or not, and we will have to give an account. So set your minds. Focus on the future. There is this stuff in front of us now. Yeah, but there's a bigger thing out there. When, when those passions come in and try to blow us off course, then we need to reject those and deny those and live in reverent fear knowing that there is an accountability to a significantly higher power. 
First Peter chapter 3, I think, says it like this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with reverent fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the imperishable precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundations of the earth for your sake and you who through him are believers in God who raised Christ from the dead to give him glory so that your hope and faith are in God. Church, set your hearts by setting your minds, denying your passions, and living in reverent fear. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your perfection, for your calling. And Lord, I know that I do not always get it right. There are many mistakes I make, and often I'm distracted or blown left or right. I pray that you'd forgive me for that and that your desires would rule over mine, that you would help me to set my mind and my heart and my passions on you and you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in worship, now is the time in our church where we celebrate something called the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you've been in church before, you've probably seen it done in a, diff- a number of different ways. Um, the way we do it is this, is that um, in a little bit, the Ushers will come forward and they'll distribute the elements. We'll hold on to those and we'll take them together. But we want you to know that while you don't have to be a member of our church, you have to be a member of the church. And what that means is this. We're not talking about any local body or organization. We're talking about the body of Christ universal. In other words, by taking this, you're saying that I believe in Jesus' death in Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' return. That I believe in those things. And just like I have taken that into me spiritually, I will now take this into me physically to represent that. So if you don't believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then it's a better idea to go ahead and let this pass and Talk to one of us afterwards, and we'll be glad to explain it to you. But if you've believed in Jesus as your Savior, then this is open for you. And it's an encouragement, too. I I think so, because what happens is this. We read in 1 Peter about, you know, setting our hopes and setting our minds. And then I begin to think about that, and I'm like, man, I don't always do that. I rarely do. I mess up. I get distracted all the time. I follow my own desires. And then I read further and it says, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And what that tells me is that Jesus' blood is more valuable, more costly, more 
expensive than any of my sins. And because his payment is so valuable, it covers everything I've ever done. And if I accept that payment and I apply that payment by faith, then it cleanses me from all unrighteousness because his blood is more valuable, his sacrifice is more effective, and his resurrection more powerful than all my sin. And so today, as we get ready to take this, what we'll do is uh, the ushers will come forward at this time, and then the musical play, I'll say a prayer, and it'll give you time to um, get right with God, to do business with God, uh, to clear up anything that may have gotten away this week, and be sure that you're trusting in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus, your Son, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I do pray, Lord, that you will change our hearts, that you will help us to focus on you. And we thank you for this time of worship through communion. It helps us to do that, Lord. Forgive our sinful desires, um, rid us of our evil passions, and give us clean hearts and clean hands as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.